0: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by digital media. Today's show is brought to you by SoFi. SoFi offers student loan refinancing. that saves members on average $19,000. They also partner with companies to help pay down employee student debt. See how SoFi can help you at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Today's show is also brought to you by Mac Weldon. I've been telling about Mac Weldon for many, many months now. I'm now getting endorsements via email about the Mack Weldon purchases you guys are making, which makes me happy, makes Mack Weldon happy as well. Malcolm Gladwell may not be familiar with Mack Weldon, so I'm gonna tell him about him. They make hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks like these, Malcolm Gladwell. Are these impressive? Oh, wow. He is very impressed. That has excited Malcolm Gladwell. They're comfortable socks. I wear them all the time. I wear them on my podcast. They're made of naturally antimicrobial fiber. That means they smell good. They're easy to buy. Go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off with your order at the promo code Recode. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code Recode. If for some reason you don't like this stuff, you hang on to them. MacWeldon sends you your money back. They will not ask you any questions. I don't know how it works, but they're doing it. Go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code Recode. Kind of weird to read sock promos in front of you, Malcolm Gladwell. Why? It seems like something you would not do on a podcast you would host.
1: I don't know if that's true. I, As you know, I'm now in the same business, and I expect to be doing the same...
0: Same kind of sock shilling?
1: Yes. Well, I think it's <laughs> kind of great. It's
0: <laughs> I kind of like it, too, actually. It's very novel for me. Like you said, you're in the podcast business. You are a world-renowned and really excellent writer, a New Yorker. You've written many famous books, and now you are making a podcast, and that's why you're here today. Uh, you've made the podcast. You'll be able to hear it when this drops. Tell us what it is and why you're doing it.
1: It's called Revisionist History. Uh, It's 10 episodes, and they're all, it's reported. It's not... It's not this. It's not two guys talking. It's it's not two guys talking. It's like, you know, This American Life sort of storytelling. And each episode is about something from the past that has been either misunderstood or unjustly forgotten and hence revisionist history. I go back and I revise our understanding.
0: So give me an example of something you're revising. I
1: mean, I made it, you know, the truth is the great advantage of that rubric for a show is it allows you to do virtually anything, which is what I wanted. (laughs) Um, So a good chunk of these are simply Malcolm ranting about his favorite things. But that said, the common theme is they're all, everything took place in the past. So there's an episode that's about an Elvis Costello song from 1984. It's on "Goodbye Cruel World," okay. His worst album, which even he says is his worst album, and it's one of the worst songs on uh, that album. It's called uh, "A Deportees Club." I don't know it exactly.
0: I thought it was good. You thought you were going to say Allison, and it turns out it's no, 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 no. This, it's a song.
1: It's a song that even Elvis Costello aficionados have never heard. And the show's all about the fact that. Elvis Costello then goes back and does another version. He revisits the scene of his sort of worst creative disaster, and he turns it into a song that is absolutely sublime. And so the episode is all about the role that iteration plays in creativity, that um, it's combating the notion that things of genius emerge beautifully formed from people's imaginations. He says, actually, a lot There's, of what we think of as genius started out as being really terrible. And you
0: iterate and you perspirate. And he eventually... thought about
1: it. He probably had some sleepless nights about it. And then years later, he just does this out version. And I have to say, it's it's my favorite song. That's why I did the show.
0: So you, you tell an interesting story, then that story pulls out an interesting theme. It's sort of a, a yeah. classically Gladwellian Very Gladwell. approach.
1: In the middle of that episode, we find ourselves in the mat Looking at saisons in the presence of you know one of the America's greatest, one of the world's greatest saison experts, um, so it's like there's a lot of that. Uh, these these stories are opportunities to go interesting places.
0: So I said this sounds like a Gladwell sort of approach. Most of us know you through your New Yorker pieces and then your books. And there is kind of a sense of what a Malcolm Gladwell story is. Did you think, all right, I'm going to do a Malcolm Gladwell story, but I'm going to do it in audio, or is this a chance to do a different kind of thing? No, there's
1: several differences between if such a thing exists as a Malcolm Gladwell story. But um, this is a lot more, uh, the point of view is a lot more upfront. So there are several episodes where I end, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm in full rant mode. I am holding forth on something that really moves me, upsets me, you know, irrit- I, you know, there's a lot more of emo- an emotional response on, on my part. And also, because it's audio, you can do, you know this, you can do this magnificent thing that you can't do on the page, which is um, you can move people emotionally. I mean, really hard to move people emotionally on the page. On radio, that's what you can do. And so I, because I am, I've always been very partial to the thought that I could make someone cry, there's lots of crying in this.
0: You've never tried to do that in print?
1: I tried and tried. largely failed. Yeah. But in radio, the great, fantastic discovery of doing this podcast was wait a minute. Like one show in, I was like, wait a minute. I could finally make people cry. And is that
0: because you're talking in their ear? Is that because you're using extra audio? Like, it's because like there's
1: something. I don't know the kind of theory on this, but I know that sort of anecdotally, scientists talk about how. Our ears are our emotional instruments, and our eyes are our kind of rational instrument. So you, th- you feel with your ears, and you think with your eyes. Ooh, I like that a lot. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense, right? And it also explains the shortcomings of radio, which I also discovered really quickly, which was I can't make a complex statistical argument on the radio. It can't be done. No one's going to... You can't You're keep the wander. numbers in your yeah. head. Right, So you give that up. You can do that on the page. And I do that on the page all the time. You can't do that on radio. But you can do this marvelous thing, which is you can reach into someone's heart and grab it.
0: So you have a much cruder and less sophisticated media theory, which is that you can... Good writing and bad writing are much closer sort of in terms of their effectiveness. If you're great, someone who's not good could do an equally useful job of putting something on a page or a screen and it can get the job done. Mm. Um, If you make a lousy podcast or, by the way, a lousy video, no one's going to give you any amount of of flexibility, right? They're going to tune you out. They're they're going to switch off in in two seconds.
1: That's interesting. That actually, that, uh, I think these two theories are very complementary because Maybe it's because our emotions are much harder, tougher judges. Yeah, than I, like, I like that
0: theory. Right? People listen to this thing, so that makes me feel good. <laughs> um, we, we were talking off air. You grew up in Canada. In, in Canada, radio is a thing, or was a big thing, or did that influence sort of your approach here?
1: Huge. I mean, it is a good, big thing. So Canada, like many European countries, is a country with a uh, very, very dominant public radio tradition. So it would be as if, imagine NPR, but NPR was listened to by 60% of the American population. I'm making a number up. I don't know what it is for CBC. But the cultural weight of CBC radio in Canada, um, it's like the BBC in England. It's not like NPR in America.
0: Right. It's very hard if if you're American to sort of grasp what that means, to have what the BBC means or the CBC means. But it's a national voice, basically.
1: It's a national voice. And the quality of CBC radio is... I mean, I'm not making any enemies when I say I think it's well beyond NPR. I mean, CBC Radio over the years has had a series of, I mean, starting with, you know, the American uh, writer David Frum, Mm -hmm. who's actually Canadian. His mom, Barbara Frum, was really the voice of my childhood. She was one of the most extraordinary she was the host of As It Happens. As It Happens.
0: See, I've, she, I've, I've, I was talking with someone before that, and I've got that theme song in my head. Dun, which, dun, dun,
1: dun, dun, which I thought was dun, Jumping dun, dun, Jack
0: Flash. I was trying to do, Google do, it. Do, 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 do. <laughs> it That's turns right. out it's not. It's do, an entirely totally different do, song that sounds yeah. exactly like Jumping Jack yeah. Flash with a flute. And it's a very, very public radio. I kind listened of
1: thing. to, to at my fam, whole family listened to As It Happens <laughs> every night, probably for 15 consecutive years.
0: And so was, does that intimidate you then? If you come from a culture. Where radio is a big deal, and you say, "I'm going to try. I'm going to try my hand at sort of making my own audio thing." Or you go, yeah. oh, "Whatever. It's it's fine. I've done I've done a lot of different stuff. This is a new thing. Yeah. It's not that it's not that fraught.
1: No, I think it made me aware of the possibilities of the medium. It's like there's a corollary in basketball. So kids, Steph Curry comes along and starts hitting these absurd what we would have thought of as absurd 35 footers, and I suspect that I know now. Someone was telling me that if you go into any playground in America... There's a bunch of kids doing stuff, Curry. Kids are just jacking up monstrous threes now. Whereas in the Jordan era, they would go to the basket and like try and dunk. And so what Curry does is is he expands our understanding of what's possible on a basketball court. And lots and lots of kids are realizing, actually, I can shoot reliably from long distance. I just never tried before because I never thought it was possible. And, you know, you can point in sports to... Hundreds of examples of this. A format Breaks a mile, and then everybody does, because like, oh, it's possible. So if you grow up in cultures that are particularly good at something, you get a huge advantage, because you know it's possible. And I grew up in a culture that is maybe better at radio than almost any other culture in the world, I would argue. And so when I started to do this podcast, this was not news to me that you could tell a great story on the radio.
0: And then mechanically, how does this work? You're doing this with Panoply. It's run by Jacob Weisberg, your friend, who yeah. runs Slate. Are they paying you to do this? Or how oh, does that, how, I, is this a business I, for you?
1: It, 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 potentially. I haven't gotten any money yet. I'm, it is my firm hope some money will come. The very coming. internet
0: of you to sort of hope yes, that it monetizes yes. later. No,
1: I, but I will say, no, we, I will get paid. We have a sponsorship deal. But I didn't do it. What I really am say is I didn't do it for the money. I did it because I thought it would be cool,
0: and, um, but these again, it's not—it's it's not just coming here and talking to you, right? This is a reported story. You go places; yeah. it takes time. So this is time you're not spending—six months writing a book. Six, six months it took six months. Not—I assume you cuts into your New Yorker output. I did
1: no New Yorker stories during this time.
0: So this is a serious thing for you, right?
1: Yeah, it was a significant investment of time and effort. In and,
0: the- and was it something where Jacob had been coming to you for years, saying, "Please come do this," and you finally relented, or you came to him?
1: Yeah, so Jacob, it's a Jacob, I've known for since I was in my early 20s. We were roommates in Washington, D.C., and he is, and I'm not just saying this because I'm his friend, the most delightful person in the world. So he starts this, he's running Slate, and he has Panoply, this division of his company, this podcast. And so he said, I'd love for you to do a podcast, and really just the idea of being able to spend more time with Jacob is enough. Done, sold. So I was like, all right, I'll do it. I mean, I didn't really think more about it than that, that... Technically, he's my boss on this, which is such a delightful concept. <laughs> Someone who's known him for so long and has such affection for him. So. All
0: right. Well, it's weird to talk about a thing that I haven't heard yet, so we'll stop talking about that, and we'll listen to it eventually and come back and talk in a while. And We're going to monetize ourselves for one second here. Today's show is brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is a new kind of finance company. They're helping people get out of student debt faster, and they're saving them a lot of money. Refinancing student loans with SoFi saves members an average of $19,000 in all capital letters. SoFi even partners with companies to help free their employees of debt. See how SoFi can help you at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Okay, we're back. We're done monetizing. That was really efficient. I'm here with Malcolm Gladwell. We talked about your new podcast. I wanted to talk to you for a long time, so I'm going to use some of that time to talk about non-podcast things with you if you can. I've always been jealous listening to Bill Simmons talk to you for years about whatever random Bill Simmons topic. I'm not going to make you do hot takes. But I do want to ask you about journalism and the media business and Mm -hmm. and how you got your start. You sort of broke into journalism through the Washington Post. But prior to that, you'd grown up outside uh, Toronto, Mm -hmm. small town. How did you get from there to the Washington Post?
1: I applied in college on a lark. Uh, for a job at a magazine that I had never either heard of or read, because a friend of mine read it called *American Spectator*, so sort a of conservative monthly, and I applied and miraculously got the job, moved to Bloomington, Indiana, and lasted about five months. And then I lost that job. Or a better way of saying it is I was fired. And then I moved. I literally like you know put my belongings on my over my shoulder and moved to washington dc i had know just kind of on
0: a lark your thought was that would be a fun place to hang out and uh,
1: yes and so that's how i got to washington and got some job working in a think tank and then i started freelancing and made my way and got a job at the washington post sort of mirac- i don't really know why or how to this day, a very miraculous event, because I'd never worked for a newspaper before.
0: Because it's, it's hard to imagine these days, but for people who weren't around in the 80s and 90s, working at any newspaper, let alone the Washington Post or New York Times, that was that was the pinnacle of, of it was, journalism. It was, it was something the, you yeah. aspired to after yeah. decades of work. We didn't just wander into it. So something happened there.
1: Well, you know, I, I was hired by the Washington Post in 1987, and I later checked, and I think I'm right, that 1987 was the high watermark of Washington Post Company profitability. I think it was, on a kind of percentage basis, the most profitable major corporation in America that year. I could be making this up. Sounds Point good. Is, they were loaded, like, in a way that's unimaginable now. And I think they had so much money that they were just hiring anyone in the vicinity. And I happened to be in the vicinity, and so you, I got scooped up. Yeah. It, was, it felt like... You come here, yeah.
0: And was that something was so? Had journalism been something you'd aspired to? I mean, Oregon. You well, that I, I wanted like to go to business to school.
1: Do. I kept on applying and postponing, applying and postponing, and I was just doing journalism basically just to kind of twiddle my thumbs until I figured out what I wanted to do. But I kept getting these jobs and saying, "Oh, it's a little bit longer." And then I went to the Washington Post, and after a certain point, realized I should probably just stay here.
0: And You were a science writer at the Post.
1: No, I started out as a. Uh, covering local business, and I covered the local healthcare business. And then I moved into covering science for the national staff.
0: And again, the, the notion of any newspaper having a science reporting staff is incredibly hard to imagine these days. Oh, I mean, we have five. A yeah, it's amazing. When you, And then you went to the New Yorker, what year, 93? Six. 96. Yeah. So you spent nearly a decade uh, at the Washington Post. When you arrived the New Yorker, did you have that sort of Gladwellian style established or was that something you created at the New Yorker? Because you again have a very identical uh, sort uh, of way of creating well, Because I
1: don't really believe I have a Gladwellian style. It's hard for me to answer that yeah. question but I think I think I just sort of started to write that way because i that's the only way that it struck me that was the interesting way to do stories was to um, use these kinds of narratives as jumping off points. To
0: Could end. you? Did you get to write those kind of stories at the Post? Did the Post allow you to do that? Did you know, they teach you how to do that? Mild
1: versions of yeah. that. The Post was a very, very, very forgiving environment you could basically do what you wanted and so i see I, I know like i said i don't really think of what i do is that necessarily original or was i using social science as a way to tell stories yes at the washington post to a, to a small extent yeah
0: what, what do you think happens to you if you're malcolm gladwell but you're starting your career out today 2016 do you still sort of wander into the washington post or a place like that do you write stuff for yourself on a tumblr do you skip the entire
1: thing because journalism seems like a dead end Oh, it's interesting. I probably wouldn't have gone into journalism, I don't think. I, You know, I got out of school at a time when Canada was in a pretty deep recession, and I was probably much more—and I don't—my family is—they're not poor, but they're not wealthy. So there was a very clear expectation that I had to make a living. And that was really—not only that, that making a living was going to be hard, because it was the middle of the recession. So all of my decisions in the first part of my career were driven almost entirely by money.
0: Will I get paid? Yeah,
1: I need to get paid. So I don't imagine that would be the same today. So that's what conditioned a lot of what my choices in those early years. And I wrote a lot of freelance. When I was first moved to Washington, I freelanced up a storm um, for anyone who would take it. And maybe I realized now that it was because I enjoyed writing. But at the time it was, I need money. I don't have any money. I'm making... I was making, I think, fifteen thousand dollars a year in my first job in DC, and I was like, "I, got, I have bills to pay." Um, so that was a kind of strong and motivating. So, so
0: today's ethos, where you get paid through exposure. Uh, I would have I, none I, of that. That
1: was not happening back then. No, I wanted cash.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And then uh, you have a fantastically successful uh, first book, Tipping Point. You become a giant celebrity. At one point, I was going back and looking at some clips. There was, I guess it's sort of logical, there was then a Malcolm Gladwell backlash where people were saying a variety of criticisms about you. I mean, your, your stuff was actually unserious. Mm-hmm. People were accusing you of various, various flaws in your writing. Obviously, you didn't assume you were going to become a giant celebrity based on writing a book. In retrospect, did that seem sort of inevitable that once you achieve fame, you'd then become a sort of lightning rod for criticism?
1: Well, you know, I don't believe there was a backlash. Yeah, My interpretation is slightly different. It's mathematical. At any given time, and I'm being very, very generous here, anyone, if you look at the people who read a book, let's assume that 80% like the book as a general rule of thumb, and 20% hate it. Hate it enough that they'll say something. If you sell 10 books, it means you have eight people who like you, and you've made two enemies. Two enemies in the grand scheme of things is nothing, right? No one's even gonna hear from them. If you sell a million books, you've made 200,000 enemies. 200,000 enemies is a lot. Now, they can make a lot of noise, but you have to remember that also means I made 800,000 friends, mm-hmm. right? So I, what other people call a backlash, I see as evidence I'm just selling more books.
0: You sold a lot of books. And to be clear, there weren't 200,000 people at your doorstep with pitchforks, right? It was just sort of no, part I of mean, the culture. No, I I'm just using this as an yeah,
1: illustration. But the point is the more backlash suggests that there was a shift in the percentage of those who liked and didn't like, I didn't see that at all. I don't think I'm unusual in any – I think the same percentage of people like me and dislike me as any other writer.
0: The thing that struck me was several years into sort of your your ascent, uh, you wrote a thing about Twitter. I was right, by the way. I want to talk about that <laughs> because it was it was astonishing to me because you suggested that maybe this was, there was a period where people were saying with straight faces that Twitter was helping sort of to yeah. create a green revolution in Iran, et cetera, and you said no, probably not. Probably it's just people on Twitter. It's different. Yeah. And Biz Stone, who at the time was a, a big deal because he was co CEO of, of yeah. Twitter, among other people, real anger about that. Yeah, that, that you couldn't possibly understand what you were talking about, and it sort of cast you as a luddite, which I thought found very amusing. Yeah. <laughs> so is there anything that you think you got wrong in your initial criticism oh, of Twitter got, and Facebook?
1: Oh, of Twitter and Facebook. And just no, social media think, and the editing. You know, let's be clear. I am wrong all the time. Sure. It's the nature of um, beast. And so the reason I love that you brought this up, but this is one of the insanely rare occasions where I believe I was 100% correct like five years early. No, I just simply pointed out what it was during Arab Spring, and right. everyone was trying to claim that. Not only was Arab Spring the sign of a kind of permanent change in the Arab world, but it was its genesis was social media. That's what made it possible. And I found both of those propositions to be laughable, and still do. Only now everyone agrees with me, and back then no one did. Look, it's a nice communication tool, but I made the distinction in the article between um, high risk and low risk activism, and high risk activism is necessary to create real social change, but it requires you to put yourself on the line. And just
0: liking something's not going
1: to do that? Yeah. Yeah. The people who went to Mississippi in the 60s to sign up voters, that's high-risk activism. You were in danger of being killed by the Ku Klux Klan. And if you're people who are willing to take those kinds of risks, they can create powerful change, right? Because they're confronting the status quo and they are putting themselves bodily in the way of it Sitting at home and doing doing a like on Twitter or Facebook, eh, I'm sorry, it's not the same thing.
0: So that's an easy piñata to sort yeah. of hit at, right? And
1: then th- Was it easy back then, though? Th- th- no. At the yeah. time,
0: th- there was, oh, this is obviously where the next thing is going. People don't ever want to be wrong on this sort of stuff, yeah. right? They want to yeah. be with the movement. I was struck. I, I did an interview with DeRay McKesson recently, Black Lives Matter, and he was on stage with Jack Dorsey. And, and DeRay loves Twitter and, and both personally he's just a Twitter nerd. But he thinks it is an actual tool for organizing. Uh, do you think that he's misguided there? That he's no, sort of misjudging a- what Twitter can do?
1: No, it's an actual tool for a certain kind of organizing. And this was my point um, in the piece, which is there are certain things for which, what I call, I used the distinction, the Mark Granovetter distinction of years ago between weak ties and strong yep. ties. Twitter is the king of weak ties. As a way of bringing together people who don't know each other, who are disconnected by geography or culture or what have you, and allowing them to coalesce around a particular idea, it's fantastic. That is not the same thing as confronting and changing established hierarchies. And so long as, it depends if you're Black Lives Matter or any other activist group, it depends on what are you trying to achieve. Martin Luther King was trying to fundamentally change the legal and social framework of the United States. Twitter and work... If that's what your goal is. If you want to integrate the schools of the American South, you cannot do that on social media. You have to get a bunch of people to put their lives on the line to make it happen. On the other hand, if you're trying to create awareness, general awareness around an issue, you know, I was just before I came here, I realized I'm asked how to do this. I read the statement by the Stanford sexual assault yeah. victim. Okay, that statement. Social media has made it possible for an infinitely greater number of people to read that statement. Right,
0: that wouldn't have surfaced without the social media. It would have. Sur- I mean,
1: it might have been published in the New York Times. It may maybe
0: have. excerpts of, and it, it would have been the Times' decision whether or not to publish it.
1: Yeah, I mean, so for that kind of stuff, generalized awareness about about the issue of sexual assault, that Twitter and Facebook and the internet are fabulous. But if you actually want to go and change hearts and minds and laws and deeply entrenched things, you have to go beyond that.
0: What what do you make of the fact that that ISIS, among others, loves Twitter and other social media and the Internet in general um, and finds it a very effective tool for both sort of propaganda and and apparently recruiting?
1: I would say that that is both their greatest strength and their greatest weakness. So long as they are relying on those kinds of tools for recruitment and communications, and so long as those tools are a central part of their strategic uh, goals they will never pose an existential threat to the United States. Because? Because if you want to take down the U.S., you have to get organized on a whole different level, right? You have to, you know, if you look at Al-Qaeda in the days when they pulled off 9 this was not a Facebook operation. This was a an old-school, strong ties terrorist organization that was drawing on, you know, that had much more in common with the Viet Cong, than it did with ISIS.
0: So we're taping this a day after the attacks in Orlando. We don't know what's going to actually mm-hmm. come out, but it looks as if, uh, based on the early reports, that the guy who killed 49 people in Orlando was someone who didn't have a direct tie to ISIS and yeah. was obviously unstable, but seemed to have been influenced by their proselytizing via, I would assume, mm-hmm. social media. So it seems like that's the kind of thing that does work via digital media well, broadly.
1: So, yeah, so that's a slightly different phenomenon. So we have in this country... You know, this long and terrifying tradition, horrifying tradition of mass shootings, more so than any other culture in the world. And that mass shootings are about troubled people finding scripts that allow them to play certain roles um, in society and fulfill certain fantasies. And, you know, every culture in the world has got troubled people. But the reason most cultures in the world don't have mass shootings is that the scripts available to their troubled people are different. The script that a Canadian person is following, if they're that kind of troubled, does not involve taking a a semi-automatic assault rifle and going into a gay club or a high school or, you know, it's a different script. Um, What has happened now is that ISIS is simply providing another script to a pool of people in the United States who are looking for one.
0: Now, so 15 years ago, this this guy might have done the same thing, and he would have tied himself to a different ideology.
1: Yeah. I mean, the remember Columbine provided and continues to provide a script for dozens, maybe too small a number, of school shootings. That's homegrown. You know, is the Columbine script any worse or better or different than the ISIS script? I mean, they they have the same end, which is they are used by profoundly troubled people to justify absolutely horrifying acts. So... I don't know. Again, I'm not, this is a profoundly, if this is terrorism, these kinds of arm's length influencing of very troubled people, it's a very different kind of terrorism than we've been fighting up until now. And I'm frankly far more worried about the incredibly organized terrorist group that sets off a dirty bomb in Times Square than I am about a group that's using Twitter to influence troubled people in the United States.
0: I didn't imagine I was going to spend this much time talking about terrorism Mm -hmm. with you, but but I'll ask anyway. I've always been sort of confused when I see ISIS or whomever using the internet as a terror tool, Mm. however we want to describe it. Because in my naivete, I just assumed that people who got technology, that people who got access to free press and the internet inevitably sort of came aboard. And and this is – again, I'm not the only one who thought this. Mm. Um, It seems like there's a lot of evidence that say, no, no, if you give people access to the internet and free expression – they won't necessarily sort of join the global democracy movement. Does that strike you as sort of odd Mm. that people like ISIS are able to use tools like YouTube or Twitter or Facebook to create awful things?
1: No, because one of the things, and you saw this with school shootings. You know, I did this big piece on um, school shootings for the New Yorker last year and really kind of dug into this one particular case in Minnesota, outside of Minneapolis. And what I realized in doing that was that one of the reasons school shootings have persisted and not more than persisted, have almost kind of grown is that uh, what the internet does, it allows these subcultures to flourish. So everything that a potential school shooter needs to feed his, and it's almost always him, feed his poisoned imagination and fulfill his demented fantasies can be found on the internet. So what is it that allows Columbine to be this, Incredibly powerful, motivating force in the minds of these would-be shooters. Twenty years after it, um, it's the internet. It's that you. There's a whole subculture that these kids find and participate in and immerse themselves in to the point where they are. It allows them to very faithfully play out that fantasy. ISIS is playing the same game. Do you right. think that's different than being exposed to TV or being exposed to? Oh, video fundamentally games. different. Yeah. Oh yes, because. I mean, because I think there is a level of first of all the what the internet allows you to get is uncensored access to these kinds of
0: you can go as deep as you want there's no there's no restraint.
1: As, you can do as yes, that's exactly it. you can go as so to use the example of the story, the kid I wrote about in Minneapolis, I mean he was in so deep in that world. he was a kind of school shooting geek. I mean he knew chapter and verse of every he could recite from memory the top ten school shooters in terms of people killed in the United States over the last 25 years. I mean, this was like a, imagine taking the same sensibility that fuels a teenager's love of sports and applying it to school shootings. You can do that in the age of the internet. It allows this yeah, unfettered access. Pre, pre-internet you have
0: to go very, very far off the grid to get that deep. In really, that
1: they, But pre-internet, you know, they're, they're all reading the same Stephen King novel or they're, You know, they're somehow extrapolating from a music video from Pearl Jam. Or, you know, there's like, it's pretty thin gruel. And you really have to apply your imagination to go from a Stephen King novel to a fantasy about shooting up a school. But now when it's so much supplied in that much more detail, it's and that was the big point of the piece was that the longer these kinds of mass shootings go on, the lower the bar for being a mass shooter. So this guy in Orlando, uh, would he have been capable of doing that 10 years ago? I don't know. It's an open question. When you don't have school shootings, you don't have school shootings. Do you know what I mean? They feed on each other. When there's no model, there's no model. Yes, exactly. And you don't have them to the same extent in other countries because there's no models.
0: So this is more of a downbeat conversation than I imagine having. Um, We should stress that you enjoy technology. You're making a podcast that will be distributed on iPhones. You use Twitter. I um, you Twitter. go on Twitter rants. I was a little surprised to see you pop up on Twitter at one point. I thought ah, this is this is beneath mouth. No, because I'm
1: a I am by nature a ranter, so I Twitter might actually be the hilarious thing about my so-called anti-Twitter article is that I mean I love Twitter. I get almost more enjoyment out of it than almost anything else.
0: Um, now that you're done with the podcast, what do you work on next? What's your next book? What's your next article?
1: Well, I'm going to do another season.
0: Yeah, you liked it that much.
1: I think so. Yeah, I, it was really fun. Um, I might start another book at the very moment, I'm not really doing much of anything, which is a rare thing. It's been a long time since I can say that, so I'm sort of enjoying my—but I really what that means is you have to kind of recharge your creative battery, so I'm reading a lot. and
0: What a glorious place to be able to do that. When I started off this podcast series, we talked to David Remnick, who was our first guest, and, and the core question I had for him is, what is the point of a magazine in 2016 when I can get so much interesting stuff brought to me via Twitter or Facebook? Mm-hmm. I can aggregate my own magazine daily. You know, give David Remnick and The New Yorker a plug. What is the point of The New Yorker, or a magazine at this point?
1: Well, it's not just a void. I mean, you can get stuff anywhere. Can you get good stuff anywhere? I mean... Yeah, you, my, can.
0: you can. You can. There's lots of places making lots of good stuff, and you can go ahead and, and create you know, it and, and, and assemble it for yourself.
1: I had these long conversations with a really good friend of mine, Charles, who's a screenwriter, who actually won the Oscar this year for Big Short. And this is not the first time. I've had repeatedly had these conversations with people in Hollywood, and they always say, you know at any given moment, there's really only 10 funny people in Hollywood. And there's only 10 people who can write a really, really good first draft screenplay, right? 10, you can reliably, you know, Aaron Sorkin can give you out of the box a fantastic piece of work. The number of people who can do that is really, really small. So we may have greatly expanded the tools, the technical means of making your voice heard, but there is nothing in the, Digital revolution that has changed the number of no. The, the internet didn't make a
0: hundred more Aaron Sorkins, but there probably are more than ten people who are great screenwriters, and the internet's allowed you to find them, yeah. right? And I, so it's not thousands, yeah. maybe it's a thousand, and there's just many more. You know, I grew up in Minnesota. I had if we would get a print copy of the New York Times once a week, and that's how you got the mm-hmm. New York Times it's unimaginable to me what would it be like to grow up now with sort of the access to the millions of things I could find on the internet, for good and for bad, but mostly for good. Mm-hmm. And to me, it seems like it's a real challenge for a magazine where the whole point is we're going to cultivate a worldview and pick stuff for you and present it to you, yeah. all of which may be great, but it's a much wider world than just that magazine.
1: I don't know. I weirdly think it's easier to be the New Yorker today than it was 40 years ago. 40 years ago, you're up against... People might have read three newspapers in one day. They They read... The Atlantic, they read Harper's, they read all these ones that we've forgotten about. They read, if they were sports fans, Sports Illustrated. I mean, the amount of reading you had to do back then if you wanted to be well-informed. Today, you can get by in the New York Times and the New Yorker as your kind of print source. Both you can get online, but I mean, as your kind of traditional media source, you can make do with two. 25 years ago, you were making do with 10. You know, as recently as 10 years ago, I subscribed to 10 magazines, Today I subscribe to one,
0: which is the New Yorker. Which is the New Yorker. Okay, that was a quality plug. Thank you, Malcolm Gladwell. I'm looking forward to hearing your podcast. Thank Everyone you else so can much. go get it on iTunes. They're smart; they know how to get this stuff. Since you guys are smart, you're listening to this. You know how to find Recode Media, so I don't need to tell you that you can get it via Google and iTunes and Spotify. Where else am I missing, Beth? Stitcher? They still exist. Oh, they just got bought by Midroll, right? There we go. There's news for you. There's also something from Kara Swisher called Rico Decode. And Lauren Good, who you heard from, has something called Too Embarrassed to Ask. All that's available on iTunes, many other great places. Go ahead and subscribe. That's all we ask. It is free to you. Thanks to our sponsors, SoFi and Mac Weldon. Thanks to Digital Media, who makes this all possible. Thanks again to Malcolm Gladwell. See you next week.